take our Bibles tonight, we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, when we speak of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, much is often made of various circumstances surrounding his death and or his birth rather and his coming to this earth and and uh, there's nothing wrong with that obviously the Bible records these events um, unfolding particularly in his family with his earthly parents his uh, mother Mary and then uh, her espoused husband Joseph and the angels uh, telling of his uh, uh, his soon-to-be birth and and then, of course, the night of his birth and being born in a manger and all of that. But I, I hope that in the, the midst of considering all of those details of everything that unfolded, we don't miss the big picture of really what was going on in the time of Christ's coming. We, we refer to, on a theological basis, we refer to Christ's coming, his first coming, as his incarnation, as he literally took on flesh and became man, and he did so in fulfillment of promises and prophecies that had gone on before for thousands of years. The promise that one day a deliverer would come, the promise that a Messiah would come. And I'm so thankful for that as I consider uh, the, just the realities of, of God humbling himself and becoming man. Uh, what, a, what an incredible paradox that the, uh, the creator of the universe, the God of gods, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is all-powerful and almighty and above all, would humble himself and take upon him the form of flesh. We know our weakness, we know how feeble we are, but he didn't even come as a strong man. He came as a little babe and was born in a humble uh, setting and uh, it's just incredible when you consider Christ uh, humbling himself to come and enter this world the way that we all do as a baby and then uh, to live as a man though never ceasing to be God to go to the cross and die for us it's incredible uh, it's incredible folks and I hope that we understand that uh, we've been for several weeks now in Isaiah chapter 9 and considering one of the prophecies of the coming Messiah in reference to the names that would be given to him as uh, when the Messiah would come, what he would be called. And uh, we saw that his name would be called Wonderful and that he would be called the Counselor. And tonight we're going to look at the next two names that are given to him in this passage of Scripture. So if you're there in Isaiah 9, would you stand with me again uh, as we read uh, this passage of scripture. I want to remind you that Isaiah 8 uh, is at the end of, of that chapter. Uh, the Lord is really rebuking Israel for their unwillingness to heed his voice and to seek him. And because of their unwillingness to follow him, he promised that he would uh, uh, allow them to walk in darkness. But he says at the beginning of Isaiah 9, verse number 1, Nevertheless, the, di the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. And then he makes this statement in verse number 2, The people that walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And this is when the light enters. Jesus, according to John chapter 1, is that true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And so while there is judgment because of a departure from God, there is also a promise of a deliverer, uh, a promise of a Savior that is going to come. And if we look at, down to verse number 6, notice it says here, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And notice these words, The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. It's well established and mostly well understood that this verse in Isaiah 9 and verse number 6 is a prophecy of the Messiah that will come. And I want you to notice those words that it says in verse, the beginning of the verse, for unto us a child is born. This child would be the one who would be the deliverer. He would be the savior. He would be the one that would bring them out of darkness into light. Uh, Second Peter tells us, or First Peter rather tells us that, uh, that, that the Lord God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he has made us a people that we're not a people. And, and, and the Lord by his son, the, the God by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has delivered us from darkness and he's made us to walk in the light. And so here, verse number 6 is very, very clearly a promise of the, the deliverer who would come. Now, folks, I will tell you that many people in the world today, many religious people in the world today, do not deny uh, the existence of Jesus. They don't deny many of the teachings of Jesus. And some of them don't even deny that Jesus was the Son of God. But did you know that there are many in the world today that deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? That he is God himself. However, it's very clear right here in this very verse that his name shall be called the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Before Jesus was ever born in the earth, it was already known, and those who knew the scriptures would have known, that the Messiah that would come would be God in the flesh, that God himself would come. We're here in Isaiah 9. Go back to chapter 7, if you would, just a page or two back there in chapter 7. And I want you to notice what it says here in verse number 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. By the way, we read that as though that's just, we're so accustomed to this that we kind of gloss over that. But you understand that never in the history of the world had a virgin conceived. There's only one way that, that, that a, a baby, that a child is conceived. And it requires a man and a woman. No virgin has ever conceived. But God said a virgin shall conceive. 
And years later, you know what happened? A virgin conceived and brought forth a son. It says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This is a sign. There's something different about this. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And folks, you know that the word Emmanuel literally means God with us. And so Jesus' very name, the name of the Messiah, is God with us. You can deny the deity of Christ. You cannot deny that the Bible teaches the deity of Christ. You can argue with it. You can disagree with it. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that He is God. I want to just walk you through some scriptures and show this to you tonight just to make it clear so that we all know who it is that we're talking about. When we sing about Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about simply a good man. We're not simply talking about a godly man. We're not even simply talking about the Son of God and the Son of Man, though He is those things, but we are talking about God Himself. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. God was manifest in the flesh. John chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the book of John starts off by telling us that in the beginning there was this one whose name is the Word. And this Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse number 14, it tells us that the Word who was with God and was God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And it, it tells us in verse number 3 that all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, He's the Creator God. Matthew chapter 1 and verses 22 and 23, speaking of the... The birth of Jesus Christ and, and, and the, the, the angel telling of his birth. It says this, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. In other words, Isaiah 7 said that a virgin will conceive... Bring forth a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1 tells us that the birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So we see clearly that the Bible teaches that he is God in the flesh. Also, if you uh, hold your place here in Isaiah, but go with me to the book of John. In John chapter number 8, I want to show you that Jesus also made it very clear that he is eternal. Uh, he has no beginning and no ending. Jesus is eternal. Of course, we read in John 1 and verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. He has been there since the beginning. He is eternal. But look with me at John chapter number 8 and verse number 53, if you would. Verse 53, a question is posed to Jesus. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? 
which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Now this is a very important question. Because people will say, well, that, the concept that Jesus is God in the flesh, that's, that's been made up by man. That's been made up by religion. That's a Catholic idea, or that's a Protestant idea. Folks, it's not. That's a Bible teaching. Let me show you why. They asked Jesus himself, what do you say about yourself? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Listen to this, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now wait a second. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? Do you remember in Genesis 22 when Abraham and Isaac walked up Mount Moriah with wood and fire? And Isaac said to his father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You remember what Abraham said? He said, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And as he went to sacrifice his son, there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. In essence, a, 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 a ram, a lamb wearing a crown of thorns that became the substitute for his son. That rather than Abraham having to give his son, God provided a substitute. It's, it's an incredible picture of what was to come. And Abraham, all the way back there, saw Christ's day. He was able to see that there was coming a day that God would provide himself a lamb. By the way, John chapter 1 and verse number 29, John the Baptist, as Jesus walked through the reeds of the Jordan River there, pointed to Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so he says, Abraham, your father, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Verse number 57, it says, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now you might look at that and say, Well, what, what, is, what does that mean? When Jesus said, I am, he, he was making it very clear. The, the Jews of the day clearly understood. If, back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses uh, was speaking to God, when God was speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, and Moses responded, he said, When I go to Egypt and I tell your people that you've called me to lead them out of Egypt, what shall I tell them that your name is? He said to them, I am that I am. Tell them, I am hath sent you. And so when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he was clearly identifying himself as Jehovah God. And if you don't believe that, notice verse number 59, then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid, hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. If Jesus was not claiming to be God, why were they seeking to stone him? 
because they considered it blasphemy because they knew very well that Jesus was claiming that he was God. And he's saying before Abraham was, I am. In other words, my existence didn't begin in Bethlehem 30 plus years ago. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm eternal. So we see that he's eternal. We see that he's the creator of all things. Because it says in John chapter 1 and verse 3 that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. But go forward a few more pages, a little ways in the New Testament to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter number 1. And we notice that this is taught once again in the New Testament that Jesus is the creator who is before all things. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 12, it says this, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now notice this, we're giving thanks to the Father who's translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom, that is in his Son, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And so this is saying of Jesus, the Son, that we've been translated into his kingdom. By the way, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Christ, is called the kingdom of heaven, and it is called the kingdom of God. We're translated into his kingdom. And we're told that by him... All things were created. They were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And now it says in verse number 19, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. You say fullness of what? Go over to chapter 2, verse number 9. Well, let's back up to verse 8 so we can just be clear. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know what the Godhead is? That's what we call the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And it says that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Jesus is not some created being. He's not simply just the Son of God in the sense that somehow God created him or made him and he is less than God the Father. He is, though distinct in his person, he is the Son, yet he is co-equal with the Father. He is God. 
1 John 5 makes this very clear that there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. They are one. And in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then one more place I want to take you just to show you. Make sure that we are very clear on this. John chapter number 20. John chapter 20. If you remember, Jesus... After he was crucified and then raised again, his disciples struggled to believe that he had actually resurrected. And Thomas in particular made that bold statement, unless I can put my hand in his side, right, I, I won't believe. Unless I can touch him, unless I can personally experience him, I will not believe that he is alive. In John chapter number 20, I want you to notice in verse number 24, uh, or rather verse number 26, it says here, and after eight days again, his disciples uh, were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. In other words, okay, Thomas, whatever it takes for you to believe in me, I'm here. I am as real as it gets. Look at, look at the response of Thomas in verse number 28. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus, verse number 29, began to rebuke him, saying, I am not God. Is that what it says? No, it says, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, Jesus confirmed exactly what Thomas said. Yes, Thomas, I am your God. Now, you cannot have it both ways. Either Jesus is God, because it's clear he claims it over and over. He said to Thomas earlier, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John chapter 14. Over and over, he says, I am. Uh, I and my Father are one. He claimed to be God. You cannot say that Jesus was a good man, and yet he was not God. Because if Jesus was not God, then he was a blasphemer. But Jesus is no blasphemer. He has every right to receive honor and glory and worship. Why? Because... He is God in the flesh. He is the mighty God and the everlasting Father. I mean, God came to us. Folks, do you understand this? Do we see this? God came in the flesh. And God the Father has given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see this identity, who he is. He's the, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. But I, I want you to notice what, what it says here in, in Isaiah chapter 9. Or, uh, yeah, Isaiah chapter 9 in verse number 6. I lost my place there, forgive me. Uh, it says here, for unto us, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So here we have the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, being given to us as a child. I mentioned it at the outset, folks, but I don't ever want to get over the fact that just, just the mere entrance of God into a world of sinners is unfathomable in terms of His condescension and His humility. Had Jesus come to this earth as a ruling and reigning king and, and come and seized authority over all of the earth and took possession of all of the riches of the earth, and, and, and if from that moment forward he dwelt in the presence of men who bowed at his feet and worshipped him, he still would have been humbling himself to come and dwell among men. And yet Jesus didn't come like that. Because unto us a son is born, a child is born, a son is given. He came and was born. Now, I love babies. They're precious. But there is nothing in this world, as, at least as far as human beings are concerned, more humble than a baby. That's totally dependent on everyone else for everything. Dependent for food, for shelter, to be clothed, to be helped. To be held, infants are fragile, infants are unable to do things for themselves. Think about this, God subjected himself to this lowly estate, but he wasn't even born into a family of royalty and wealth, he was born dare I say, into a scandalous situation? I mean, we understand it wasn't scandalous. There was nothing improper or sinful that had taken place, but the world didn't understand that. Through the world's eyes, this was a shameful thing. And he entered into the world in this less than ideal circumstances by man's Standards, and then he comes and he's born not in a home, not even in an inn, but he's born in a stable among the animals and laid in a manger. I mean, how much more humble does it get? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't, it, it wasn't, Jesus didn't come because he wasn't worthy of being equal with the Father. He was equal with the Father. But he made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. People struggled to believe him. People struggled to accept him because he didn't come from privilege. He didn't come from power. 
I don't know that I would go so far as to say that he came from poverty, but he certainly didn't come uh, into the world in a way that just announced the greatness of who he was. And yet, throughout all of this, he continued to condescend. He continued to humble himself. Think, think with me on this. <clears throat> he was made, he took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and then, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. You say, how much more humble can he become? Well, he continued to humble himself. And he dwelt not only among men, but among the outcasts of society. And even the people who recognized him for who he was and called him Master and Lord, he bowed and washed their feet. He humbled himself and he became obedient unto death. And the greatest condescension of all was that Jesus took your sin and my sin upon him. Who knew no sin? He became sin. that We might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want to show you his humility briefly. Let's go over to Luke chapter 2 tonight. Luke chapter 2. And I want to show you, I just marvel when I read these words. Luke chapter 2, Jesus is 12 years old. His parents have gone back to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And on their way home to Nazareth, they realized that Jesus was not with them. And so they returned to Jerusalem. Spent three days in Jerusalem looking for him. And verse number 46, it came to pass that after three days... They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, let me just say something here. Joseph acted as a father to Jesus. But Joseph was not his father. Now, Mary could rightly be called his mother because she carried him in the womb and delivered him. But he didn't have Joseph's blood flowing through his veins. And yet the relationship was such that he's being raised in this home and his mother and his stepfather is really what he was, though from the time of his birth he was there. And so his mother, and listen, Mary was a good woman and she was a godly woman, but she was not deity. We need to be careful about that because the world exalts Mary to this position. The angel said to her, Blessed art thou among women, not above women. She called Jesus her Savior. Amen. My soul rejoices in God my Savior. You know who needs saviors? a Savior? Sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one, and that includes Mary. 
And so here she is, she's talking to Jesus, and as any mother would, concerned for her child, kind of rebukes him. Imagine rebuking the Son of God. Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Now here he is, 12 years, 12 years old, living in the home of Joseph and Mary. And I don't believe that he was disrespectful in his response, but he was direct in his response. And that was this. Essentially, Mom, don't forget who my father is. I'm about his business. So verse number 50, And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. Jesus was subject to Mary and Joseph. That's a humbling thought to me. That my Savior, who was God in the flesh, submitted... To his parents. And I think there's some evidence here that would suggest that Mary and Joseph were not perfect parents. They didn't seem to even really understand his purpose in life and really who all he was. I know they, they knew that he was special. There was obviously something different about him. But did they fully understand that Jesus was sinless? Did they understand that he was perfect? If they would have understood that, would she have rebuked him? And if Jesus could, could, could submit himself, kids, to imperfect parents, so can you. Mom and dad don't always get it right. But you still need to be subject unto them. And so he went down to Nazareth, was subject unto them. Imagine the humility that that took. And then verse number 52. It says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Now, again, understand, we're, this is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. And yet he had so humbled himself that he set aside, to whatever degree, even his wisdom and knowledge to where he had to learn that in life. He never set aside his deity. He continued to be God. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, but and, and I can't fully describe this, but he humbled himself to such a degree that he actually required himself to go through the process of growth and learning like you and I do. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus sub subjected himself to a similar life experience that you have. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus being God, being equal with God the Father, humbled himself. So when we look at a nativity scene, Are we really considering what happened there? That God became flesh. And why did he do that? I don't want to miss the words in Isaiah 9-6 that say, For unto us a child is born. Unto us. A son is given. We're in Luke chapter 2. Look at verse number 11. And notice the angel uh, here is speaking to the shepherds and says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Why would God become a man? The simple answer is for us. He did this for us. Amen. Now imagine, put yourself, it, just imagine you having to revert back to childhood as a small infant and go through the process of learning to walk and talk eat and read and write and, and, and having to submit yourself to imperfect parents and to go through this, would that not be a humbling, really a humiliating experience for any of us? And we're not God. Why would God do this? He did it for us because we were the people that walked in darkness. Because we're sinners and the only way that sinners can be reconciled to God is through a perfect and sinless substitution. Now, I understand that the gospel, in a nutshell, is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Do we understand that part of that is that he lived a sinless life? Jesus came and lived a life without sin. Subjected himself to the experience, the human experience. We see him in his life facing difficulties like weakness and exhaustion and hunger, betrayal and sorrow. And all of those things, and even being tempted by Satan himself, and yet he knew no sin. He was without sin. And he lived a sinless life because the only price that could be paid, that would suffice 
the, 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 the wrath of God for us that would be a worthy sacrifice was a sinless man, the God-man. And he came and he died for you and for me. Folks, if that doesn't cause you to stand in awe of our God. That he would do that for you. Christ didn't have to come. He did because it was the eternal plan of God from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. But Jesus didn't have to come and he didn't have to die. He did willingly. He laid down his life for you and for me. It is unto us. And so as we consider a babe in a manger that's headed toward the cross, let's understand this is more than simply a story. This is our deliverance. This is our hope. And can I just lovingly admonish all of us? Some of my best memories in life have to do with this time of year and just the Christmas season and family and just a lot of different things. But friend, let's not get caught up in the glory of a season. Let's set our eyes on Him. This is about a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And He's worthy of your worship and my worship because He did all of this for us. Unto you is born this day. Unto us a child is born. Let us honor and worship Him.